Good evening. It's great to be with you all this evening. Um, great to have another day of worship. Uh, we have a lot to get through, so I'd like to get right into the lesson. But first, I do want to express, Katie, and my gratitude for everyone here. Um, you have been so welcoming and encouraging, really a blessing and answer to so many of our prayers when we were looking for a congregation. So I uh, just want to thank you, and um, it's been so good to get to know all of you over the past few months. Two out of the four Gospels, Mark and Matthew, begin Jesus' ministry with the words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And actually, in Mark's Gospel, these are the first words that, that Jesus um, is, that he records Jesus saying. And this is a recurring important theme in all four Gospels. But ever since Jesus started his ministry with those words, there's been a debate on, those, on what that means. What is it that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? In the New Testament times, when Jesus said those words, they wondered, is this a heavenly kingdom or an earthly kingdom? And even today, we, we wonder, is it coming or has it come? Christians debate this idea. And again, is it a heavenly kingdom or an earthly kingdom? So tonight, I want to, want to go through the, the biblical story and look at the kingdom of God and see what we can learn about this kingdom and what, what that can mean for us and our lives here on earth. I want to start in Isaiah chapter 6. So there's a couple of um, scenes throughout most of the prophets um, that are kind of what I call throne room scenes, where it's a vision that a prophet has of God, and they do their best to put into words what that vision was. And so uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, this is one of my favorite, just because we see Isaiah's we response to this, and we see the glory of God. I won't have a lot of comments. I just encourage you, as we read through this, just to picture what's going on in your mind. Picture yourself in the the eyes of Isaiah and what he might be seeing. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So keep that image in your mind as we go to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And so we have this image of God on his throne. And when his, his, the room, the ground shakes at the sound of his voice. And when God speaks, creation obeys. He speaks light into existence. He speaks matter into existence. And he goes on throughout creation. And whenever he speaks, creation obeys. Um, we see this this image of an all-powerful king with authority so great. 
Just like an earthly king, when a king would speak, his, his will, his command would be done. And the climax of that creation is in verse 26, when God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, let, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. From the beginning, we see that God chooses to rule through others. Verse 28, After he creates men, he, man, he gives, gives them dominion. And calls them to rule over the creation that he made. Being made in the image of God means we were called to rule and reign like God. And in Genesis chapter 2, God gives one command. And he gives a punishment for not obeying that command. So we see that God still has the authority to command and to pronounce judgment if his commands are not followed. And he gives us this garden that represents this perfect kingdom where humans live in the presence of God and reign under God's authority and protection. But it's not long before humans break that one command, and in a sense reject him as king, reject his command that he brought forth. And the punishment of that was death. Separation from God and man was removed from the garden. And that ends this perfect kingdom that God created, with man and God reigning together. And this cycle repeats all throughout the Old Testament story of God creating commands, wanting to rule with humans, and humans rejecting him. We see the fall of man and God's destruction of, of humankind through the flood. God chooses to bring forth a new covenant through Abraham, and we constantly, constantly see him working in the background through people and situations to make people learn and trust in him. The descendants of Abraham are enslaved in Egypt, and God brings them out of Egypt and brings them to a mountain, Mount Sinai. And there he establishes a covenant with them, a new law, a new command. He initially gives us in frightening scenes of thunder, lightnings, and earthquakes, so much so that the people there fear death. And here the king gives his law to his people. He gives rules and ideas that define what the people of God's kingdom should look like. How they can act and how what they can do to separate themselves from the earthly kingdoms that they will be surrounded by. And he calls them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This law is filled with concepts of godly living, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Ideas of justice, consideration for your and love for your neighbor. Care for the physically weak and disadvantaged, the, sorge- the foreigners and the sojourners. Tells us how we can worship God and approach his throne, how to be holy, and how ultimately the Lord can and will dwell among his people. But as God is giving this law to Moses, his people reject him once again by building a, an idol, an image that they worship. And this continues this in the wilderness with Israel constantly rejecting God. They have a few good years through the years of Joshua, but again we see that cycle progress through the the period of Judges. And there's a really good summary of really the the Old Testament story in the nation of Israel, um, this period of their history in Judges chapter 21, 
um, the, the last book, the last verse in the book of Judges, after you talk about this horrible depiction of sin and evil, this disgusting story, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I think this has uh, really two purposes of this statement. First of all, this was the period in Israel's history before they had a king. So there was no king in Israel. Um, that king would come later, but at the same time, there was no God. There was no godly king, no heavenly king in Israel. They rejected God. It was really a depressing era, era in the history of is- the kingdom of Israel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that rejection comes to a completeness. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people come to the, the prophet Samuel, all the elders of Israel, start in verse 4. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king among them. According to all the deeds they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey your voice, only you shall solemnly warn them, and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. We ultimately see that God does choose his king. God retains some authority in that sense. He chooses Saul. And there were also some laws that, that the Lord set forth when he was giving that law to Israel. He sets forth some laws for when they were to ask for a king. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, I won't read that. Um, but there's a list of, of things that the king is supposed to do when Israel asks for a king. So ultimately, the Lord doesn't reject the idea of a king, but it's the fact that Israel is rejecting God as their king, God's authority, and they asked for a king to be like all the nations, which was the whole point of the laws, that they weren't supposed to be like the nations. But these ideas in Deuteronomy 17 is that the king is supposed to rule in the image of God. They're supposed to understand and devote himself to the law, to God's law, and, and issue God's mercy and justice. He's a spokesperson. He's an image of God, even as a king of Israel. But if you read through the rest of Samuel and the kings and the prophets, we see that the kings don't follow Deuteronomy 17 or really anything else in the law. Eventually, the kingdom splits in two. The people are taken captive by surrounding nations as God promised would happen. Throughout this time, God would send prophets to warn of captivity. Later, those prophets would come bringing hope and encouragement for the future. And those prophets' visions, messages, and writings are filled with kingdom language and images. We also have many psalms that help us better appreciate God as our king. Many of those prophets, especially the the major prophets, begin with this idea of judgment upon the nations and ends with salvation and hope of a new and perfect kingdom that would be brought by a servant of God, where God would reign again, what that would look like, and that it would be open to all nations. But throughout this period, there's another idea that kind of starts to to show itself. If you would turn to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, starting at verse 1. It says, Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against 
and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like Tar's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In verse 2 of the song, we see this idea of the Lord and his anointed. That word for anointed, the Hebrew word is Mashiach, which we transliterate into Messiah. This is the same word that's used in Leviticus when talking about the priests and how they are to be anointed. Um, the priests were called Mashiach. And also referring to Saul, when David referred to his Saul as the Lord's anointed, he called him the Lord's Mashiach in, in the book of Samuel. The verb for that word literally means to rub with oil. And it, again, it's used when you're anointing priests and when you're anointing kings. But the noun means um, Mashiach is a person that has had oil poured on his head and consecration or dedication to a high office. And so we see here in the psalm that the Lord has this anointed king that's going to have power and authority over earthly kings. Another verse that I'll just read in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So again, we have this, this king that shall come out, out of the line of David and, and deliver Israel um, and, and cause this, this um, period of peace for them. And the book of Daniel is, is one of my favorite books when thinking about this idea of the kingdom of God. Starting in Daniel chapter 2, you have this vision of a statue um, representing four mighty kingdoms. And then a rock is carved out of stone and crushes this um, the statue, demonstrating that a kingdom that will come from God is going to destroy all these earthly kingdoms. And that kingdom will, reign, or will be established and be eternal. But then in Daniel chapter 7, we have this amazing vision of Daniel. Um, and I won't read it all, but... You have this idea of beasts coming out and bringing forth persecutions. Um, And Daniel says in in verse 13 of chapter 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So at this point, remember, Israel's in captivity, and you have these visions and these promises of, of an anointed one, of a king, that God will set forth and deliver Israel out of this captivity and reestablish them as a nation. And so this is what... Um, it would have meant to the Jews when Jesus came preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of this background was tied into that statement. You can 
just imagine their excitement when he came preaching. At this point, they were um, under Roman authority, so the Jewish nation was kind of scattered under this Roman um, empire. And so even the Romans at this point knew about a king that would come and bring salvation to the Jews, we see in Matthew chapter 2, and that's why um, the Roman government was so concerned about Jesus' birth. So what did Jesus teach about the kingdom? What did, he, what did he mean about the kingdom of heaven is at hand? What was it going to look like? Power? Military might? Turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you would. Matthew chapter 5, and starting verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are the characteristics of the people that would inherit God's kingdom. And this should look familiar. This would have been surprising to the Jews, again, expecting this powerful earthly kingdom meant to restore Israel to its former glory. But these are the concepts that we saw in, um, in the law in the Old Testament. It's just presented here in a different form. Remember, Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, as we see uh, here in verse 17. But Jesus, despite all of that, he preached the exact opposite of what the, the king of the Jews and of what the Jews and the Romans were expecting. Even his apostles struggled with the idea of this earthly kingdom and, and waiting for this earthly kingdom to be established. But Jesus continued preaching about this kingdom and drawing people to him, but that radical shift, that radical idea, turned a lot of people away and also caused a lot of people to start hating him. In Matthew chapter 16, this is kind of the climax of... Matthew's gospel, especially Mark's gospel, in his account. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he just strictly told the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. This word Christ was the Greek version of Messiah. So what, what Peter is saying here, Christ is saying, who do you say that I am? Who do you think that I am? And Christ says, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one that these prophets have prophesied about. You are the one that we are waiting for. And by saying this, Peter was connecting Jesus to all of this that we discussed in the Old Testament. 
But Peter still didn't really understand what, what that meant if we go on and continue on in the, the narrative. But Jesus, both in Matthew's and Mark's gospel, after this, this, um, after Simon claims this, um, kind of transitions into Jesus' next phase of his teaching. And he starts talking about how this kingdom is going to be brought forth. There's a really interesting passage in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 26. Starting in verse 6 of Matthew 26. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of various expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when Jesus, the disciples saw it, they were indignant and said, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus said, Why do you trouble the woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So we have this woman who comes and pours an oil on the head of Jesus, anointing Jesus. This ointment was a fragrant oil, just as we talked about that, that verb for Messiah was a person who had oil poured on his head in consecration or devotion to a high office. And so here Jesus is anointed. But you see an interesting difference. The, the Aaron was anointed by Moses. The kings were anointed by Samuel or other prophets. Moses was anointed by a sinful woman in the house of a leper. After this, Jesus um, is arrested in the garden. He appears before trial. And there's a couple of points, like, uh, for example, in verse 11, Jesus stood before Pilate, the governor, and he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, Yes, you have said so. But I want to read Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the, the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. And then Jesus dies. He's crucified in a horrible, horrible act of evil. So now what? You know, this was supposed to be the king. He said he was the king. Is the kingdom over? What are we to expect now? Well, three days later, Jesus is raised in a victory over death. And after appearing to some men, including his apostles, he ascends and is seated at the right hand of God. And so now we begin to see, looking back, this ultimate sacrifice is where Jesus was anointed, crowned, and raised up, exalted as king. This was the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. And Satan thinks he's dealing a crushing blow to the kingdom of God and to the Jewish nation, but through that defeat, God raises and crowns his king. And now Jesus is at the right hand of the throne, as we read in Daniel chapter 7, where he will reign eternally. The kingdom of, uh, uh, the kingdom of Jesus the Messiah is here. But, but what about Rome? What about, you know, why are we still here? Why 2,000 years after this event, why are we still here? What's our purpose? Why is there still death? If Jesus is, is, if his kingdom's here, why is there evil and death and sin in the world? What's our role in this kingdom? Well, the disciples had these questions too. 
If you turn over to Acts chapter 1, we have a little narrative before, after Jesus' resurrection, before he's ascended. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. When the disciples had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Sorry, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So the disciples are are thinking, okay, now you have this victory over death. Now we can bring forth this kingdom, defeat the Romans, and establish Israel. But Jesus says to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus' reply to this question is that there are spiritual things that are going on that you don't understand. Only God knows. But there's still work to do in the kingdom. And he tells us, as, at the, as the king at this point, he tells his disciples that you must be witnesses of me. And you must proclaim my kingdom and my rule to the whole world. And so the, the rest of Acts and the epistles, as they unfold, we get to see what it's like to live in the kingdom with Jesus as king and what's required of us. Basically, we see the disciples carrying out this commission that Jesus gives them in Acts chapter 1. Many letters reflect on, on God and how his kingdom and what Jesus the Messiah did to bring that to fruition. We also see work being done to spread the good news of that kingdom. The good news that Jesus is king and that there is more to this life, that eternal life is coming if we can follow him. We also see how the disciples interact under Jesus' rule and how they work together to overcome evil and persecution as a united group of brothers and sisters. And that kingdom does come with much persecution, which is what we saw in Daniel chapter 7. But the good news is that, but the good news is spread through the, throughout the world in spite of that persecution. So back to our original question, is the kingdom here or is the kingdom coming? And I think the answer is both. Jesus said when he came, he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And later he says that this generation will not pass away until they see that kingdom come. Jesus brought forth a new covenant that was promised in the Old Testament. And Jesus was the anointed one, the Messiah, that reigns over that kingdom. But there's still work to be done. There is still a spiritual battle of kingdoms going on behind the scene. Really quickly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I won't pretend like I understand everything that's going on. It's a very complicated spiritual um, passage. But there are some things I do understand. Starting, um, I'll start in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So again, I don't understand. There's, there's a spiritual. There's a lot of spiritual things going on here. But the idea is that there is a spiritual battle going on that I don't. We're not supposed to understand. We can't understand. But there's work to be done that we must do as we wait for that for Jesus to do, for once and for all to destroy death. And of course, we'll conclude our, our walk through the Bible and in the uh, Book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is is John's vision of these things kind of unfolding. 
And in, in chapter 20 of Revelation, we see the defeat of Satan. And we see the defeat of, eth, of death that we're told about in 1 Corinthians. We see the, the defeat of evil. And then in chapter 21, he starts, uh, John has walked through this new heaven and a new earth. And the idea is that this new Jerusalem is perfect. He, he gives him the dimensions of the city and the, the dimensions are perfect. Everything is perfect and pure. And then in chapter 22, uh, we'll start in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I wanted to make sure that that word they in verse 5 is referring to the saints. And I think it is. If, if anyone has a different opinion, let me know. But he says, he's talking about the servants will worship God in chapter 3. The servants will see his faith, his face. Um, there will be the servants will not need a light for the Lord God will be the light and the servants the disciples we will reign forever and ever we see that image of the garden of Eden that we will be with God and in his presence and this is God's plan this was God's plan from the very beginning from the beginning God chose to rule with and through others He does that throughout the Bible. He chooses to rule through others. He's doing that right now through Jesus and ultimately through us and his disciples. And there will come a day when we will share in that goodness, where we will share in God's presence and share in his reign and his glory. So we can be a part of that reign. We can rule with God because of his grace and because of what the the Messiah, Jesus, has done for us. But we have work to do. We have to follow the teachings of the Anointed One that He laid out for us. And we have to do the work of spreading the good news, spreading the kingdom of Jesus to all the world. I hope this has been encouraging. I hope that that you can see your purpose in the kingdom. And I hope that as you read throughout the Bible, throughout you go, the daily reading plan, that you'll see this, this idea of the kingdom. And it'll affect your, it's affected my prayers, it's affected my, how I sing and interact with God. Just picturing God as the ultimate king and how I can take part in that kingdom. But ultimately waiting for the fullness of his kingdom to come, where we can all worship and glorify him. If there's anything that you need this evening, if there's any way we can help you become a part of that kingdom or reestablish your faith, please come forward as we stand and sing. Say yes, Lord, yes to your will and to your way. I say yes, Lord, yes, I will trust you and obey. When the Spirit speaks to me, with my whole heart I'll agree, and my answer will be yes, 
Lord, yes. If I give you all the glory for all you've given me, you have filled my life until I overflow. All I have is yours to use in any way you choose. You're the Lord of all, so how can I say no? Heavenly Father, you are king of all things. Lord, when you speak, creation quakes and trembles. And when you speak, creation obeys. And Lord, tonight we have studied about your kingdom and your rule. We find such comfort and confidence as we consider your kingdom. Lord, we are blessed to live in this country and in America in a place of opportunity and hope and abundance and where many people live like kings. But we know that leaders change and countries fall and kingdoms fade. And tonight we have seen a picture of an eternal kingdom that is built on mercy and justice and compassion. And today we have remembered your kindness and Jesus' obedience that has given us citizenship in this kingdom. Lord, we're so grateful. You know us better than we know ourselves, and we're so grateful for your authority We're so grateful uh, for your direction and for your revelation, for your example, and through Jesus' example of how we can please you and spread the light of your kingdom to the hearts of others. 
Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this local body that meets here. We're thankful for the elders who seek our spiritual growth and are constantly striving to improve our spiritual lives. We're grateful for the deacons who put in a lot of extra time and effort um, to make uh, not only our our physical worship more enjoyable, but certainly uh, our spiritual lives as well. We have a number here that have been sick. Um, We know that our bodies are frail, and we know that um, sickness will come. Heavenly Father, we would ask that you be with those individuals and the people that are helping them, the people that are affected by their illness. And Lord, we're grateful because you have answered prayers and you have healed uh, some among us. We know that trials will come. We know that we are going through trials now, uh, and trials will never cease. And there are trials to be thankful for that strengthen us, that build our dependence on you. And Lord, we just hope and look forward to a final citizenship in your eternal kingdom in heaven. We're so thankful to have... Uh, been brought these thoughts tonight, and we ask that you be with us throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.